This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell, and something we seemingly give little to no value to is labor, as in people who make and fix things. Everyone from engineers to repairmen, janitors to sanitation workers, whether they're plumbers or road do uh, road construction, for whatever reason, these are not seen as skills to be proud of or noble livelihoods in any way, despite how much we depend on all of them to maintain our world and keep it functioning. Of course, considering climate change, there are parts of the world that should not be sustained as they are major contributors to global warming as well as poor air, water, and soil quality. But if we are going to move to a cleaner, greener world, we will need it to work for us. And the best way to figure that out is talk to the actual workers who do make our world work. What they will likely tell you is the world they can conceive, making and maintaining, and how both are likely counter to the demands of capitalism. That our current world of environmental damage and waste is incentivized by the market while an industry and society based on regeneration and restoration is far better for all of us. We have discussed the right to repair in the past, but what if that ethic of maintenance was applied to, say, the environmental environmentalism movement more generally. In a few minutes, we will speak with editor, reporter, and freelance writer Alex Vucolo, who will be on to discuss his Noema magazine article, The Disappearing Art of Maintenance. The noble but undervalued craft of maintenance could help preserve modernity's finest achievements, from public transit systems to power grids, and serve as a useful framework for addressing climate change and other pressing planetary constraints. Alex is a business reporter for the live-streaming financial news service Cheddar News. He covers the Fed, crypto, and supply chains, among other topics. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Alex Vucolo. That's V-U-O-C-O-L-O. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live-streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, what's new about you? I am the proud finder of four pounds of chicken of the woods mushrooms no yesterday. look at you Congratulations. well yeah i didn't really find it though my friend saw it in the car driving last week oh, and not in the car I went, as they were driving by i, I was in the car too we were okay. on the car but they were driving and not only this but they spotted a lion's mane mushroom while driving just a few days before don't know how they do it but I had the time to go and get it, <laughs> so I went and got it. Went and got it. Are they a good driver? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, I just want to make sure that they're, yeah, they're not I, just I, paying attention, not just I, looking I for mushrooms know. all the time. I mean, I think they are, but I don't know. <laughs> hey, do, do, does the mushroom farm that you work for at farmers markets? Uh, do they have a stand up at the Morse uh, farmers market? You know? No, no, no. Okay, I don't think they do. That's the Glenwood farmers market. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine was over there just re- who was in town uh, visiting, and he said there was a table there with a whole bunch of mushrooms on it that he couldn't believe the wide variety. So I was wondering if that was you as well. Hmm. I guess not. I don't mm, know. I haven't competition. Been up there. Yeah. It's on what's it's on Saturday or Sunday? Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. I work in Logan Square on Sunday, so. You guys aren't violent against each other, are you? When it comes to mushroom dealers. <laughs> no, no, mushrooms for everyone. <laughs> All right, good. That's good to hear. <laughs> uh, so here's what's new by me, and it ain't great. 
there's been yet another shooting in the neighborhood. All I know about this one is that it happened a block from my house and a car accident was involved. And I heard the four shots right before I was heading over here to begin this week's set of shows. That's at least the third shooting in the last two months. The other two were at my, well, one was at my corner. Another one was in the park right behind my place. Uh, One person died in each of those shootings. But again, I don't know anything else about the shooting that happened earlier this week. There was another reported shooting, which the police did respond to. But I think that was just someone screwing around with fireworks. And locals are really starting to worry about their safety, at least online they're worrying about it. I haven't seen fewer people on the street or walking fewer people walking their dogs in the park or riding their bikes or working on their lawns or in their yards. But I gotta admit, I'm I'm getting a bit antsy about all the shooting. Not that I'm gonna do anything about it, not that I can do anything about it, but I'm I'm just starting for the very first time in my life, including living in much less safe neighborhoods than where I live now. I'm, I'm getting uh, the, the tiniest bit jumpy. And after spending weekends as a kid with my grandmother in Detroit, while it was the so-called murder capital of the world, having lived in Lansing, Michigan, which is one of the most violent cities in the United States per capita, having lived in Chicago for decades, often in neighborhoods that were the front lines of gang fighting. After all that, only now am I getting the slightest bit jittery about shootings And if that doesn't say something about white privilege, I don't know what does. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell. Despite climate change, as well as the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? Not a lot right now, because of all the shootings around my house. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque, if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century uh, uh, flash drive, which features dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support, and we need your support now more than ever, so show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner of the question from hell at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff promotes the new slow bile movement. I have no idea what that means. And now a word from our sponsor. And as we are completely listener supported, our sponsor is you. We got an email sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com by Jean Darka, who writes, Good afternoon, Chuck. My name is Jean Darka, and I'm a writer and activist from New York City, currently living in Rogers Park. So our studios are in West Ridge, also known as West Rogers Park, which is, as you guessed it, immediately west of where Jean Darka lives in Rogers Park. I know it's all very complicated. Jean Darka continues, Last week I went to an event at Carrie's Lounge, that's the bar downstairs from our studios where I'm sitting right now, and I came across your awesome radio show. My good friend and close collaborator Jared Shanahan and I have a book that is uh, 
out now reflecting on the George Floyd rebellion. Mass incarceration and abolition in this politics. Here's an interview we did recently for Brooklyn Rail. Jean Darko then sends a link to an interview at the Brooklyn Rail titled States of Incarceration. Jean Darka Curti and Jared Shanahan with Toby Hazlitt. Jean Darka's uh, and Jared's book is called States of Incarceration, Rebellion, Reform, and America's Punishment System. According to the publisher's website, States of Incarceration provides insights into the rise of mass incarceration and its recent history while focusing on the needs of campaigners struggling with the issue of police and prison abolition as well as the changes that lie ahead. It is essential reading for anyone concerned with these questions. Jendarka adds, we are also editors of Hard Crackers Journal of Everyday Life, which explores the contradictions of life in America. We are both an uh, online and print journal. You can access it all at hardcrackers.com. Our editor-in-chief and political mentor was Noel Ignatiev, a longtime revolutionary and unfortunately passed away in uh, 2019. This year we published a reader of his collective political writings. So that book is called Treason to Whiteness is Loyalty to Humanity. Ignatiev was not only a longtime revolutionary, but also a longtime steel worker as well. Jandarka concludes by writing, Jared and I have also written a lot on contemporary politics, and we'd love the chance to come on your show to chat about either of these books or anything else your listeners are interested in. Looking forward to hearing from you. All the best, Jean Darka. First, Jean Darka, I gotta know <laughs> what event you were attending at Carrie's Lounge downstairs. Was it pool night? Was it bingo Sundays? Was it trivia Tuesdays? Was it to see a band? Were you part of that group, including University of Chicago students who used the space upstairs, right outside the door here, to show a documentary on the deforestation happening around Atlanta to build a uh, police training center? Or were you here uh, for the bars or the radio show's anniversary parties this summer or the art show that recently closed? The curiosity, Jandarka, is killing me. And if you are in a group or organization, anybody who's listening right now that is looking for a neutral space to have a meeting or show a film or whatever... Email me at chuck at com, and I'll get you in touch with whoever you need to get in touch with to use the space. Second, yes, I am interested in uh, talking to you and Jared about your book. And third, the title of your journal, Hard Crackers Journal of Everyday Life, is very, very intriguing. And if you have hard copies available, send any you can to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659, or just drop them off. Downstairs at Carrie's Lounge at the same address, and the bartender will get them to me. And finally, hat tip to the name of your Noel Ignatiev uh, collection, Treason to Whiteness is Loyalty to Humanity. And we might steal it as a tag, a new tagline for the show. Treason to Whiteness is Loyalty to Humanity. This is hell. See, it almost works. You, too, can message us via Facebook, DM us via Twitter, or email us at chuckatthisishell.com, as Jandarka did. With your constructive and destructive criticism, whatever you want to share with us, your personal thoughts, reflections, as well as guest and topic ideas, and if we do have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally on air during that interview. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Alex on maintenance. Again, the question from hell is despite climate change as well as all the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? We'll also have this week in rotten history and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this 
is hell, and the virus of capitalism has infected every part of life lived on this earth, from the deepest parts of the wilderness to our urban infrastructure, all of which is threatened by climate change. We are going to have to do something about it, and soon, as we have discussed many times with our guests on the show in the past. However, what we have not mentioned is the idea of maintenance as opposed to sustainability and what that reveals about our relationship, not only with the natural world, but with real live human labor as well. Here to help us consider a different framework when it comes to our future with climate change, editor, reporter, and freelance writer Alex Vucolo is on to discuss his Noema magazine article, The Disappearing Art of Maintenance. Welcome to This Is Hell, Alex. Hi, uh, good to be here. Great to have you on the show. You uh, begin by writing of the MTAs, that's the New York City's Transit Authority, and their R32 trains, nicknamed the Brightliners for their shiny, unpainted exteriors were built to last 35 years. When they were finally retired from service in January, they had been riding the rails of New York City for no less than 58 years and were, by most accounts, the oldest operating subway cars in the world. That's 23 unplanned years of hauling people across New York City. In a way, it was a small miracle that they lasted so long, an anomaly, as one mechanic told me, except it wasn't really. It took a lot of work from a lot of people day after day, year after year. And you explain how you recently went to talk to some of these those responsible for that work at the MTA maintenance facility in Corona, Queens. They told you that the fleet is split into two camps, one called Legacy, the other Millennial. The former were built uh, before 2000, the later, the latter after. The Millennial fleet is uh, tougher to repair in some ways because there are more electronics in the cars. Maybe you've heard your grandfather complain about this, how engines are too damn complicated these days. Shu Ling Ko, a chief mechanical officer for the train cars, told me the shells may last 40 years. The electronics, though, not so much. So, Alex, what does this is kind of a big picture question? What does it say to you about our society, our even our economy, when progress has led to products that cannot be fixed, do not last as long? And is our future a continuation of that kind of trajectory of of our stuff that it will be more replaceable than repairable? Well, I, you know. How much you can blame on the the technology itself is, is an open question and one that, frankly, I'm not equipped to answer because I think, you know, uh, the engineers themselves are the ones that are really in there looking at uh, the electronics and, and what the issues that they face specifically. But the, pro- the I think from looking at a, a stepping back and looking at it from a, a sort of wider angle, uh, the fact is that it's hard to make that distinction because these engineers don't have what they need. Uh, to do to keep this fleet in tip-top shape Uh, you know when it comes to the older sort of more strictly mechanical material issues uh, they can be more sort of ad hoc and improvisational in fixing them you know I was talking to uh, some of the engineers about uh, what they do and you know they'll call up one of the other engineer shops and be like you know hey do you have uh, this part from this uh, this car that was made in the 1970s uh, we don't have one and they don't make them anymore. So if you have an extra one, we could sure use it. And they send it over, they slap it in there and they get them back on the rails. Uh, when it comes to the electronic stuff, uh, you're still dealing with, you know, companies that are actually still in operation and you have to deal with all their proprietary uh, stuff. You have to hopefully get schematics from them and get the proprietary tools that they have and learn learn about the software. Uh, basically, you're just still navigating uh you know, a corporate relationship at that point, which can 
have its difficulties. How much of an obstacle to maintenance is the proprietary nature of technology today? This proprietary nature has been expanding more and more of late. How much does that proprietary, that newness of proprietariness, if you will, uh, how much is that an obstacle to maintenance? Well, as I said, you know, the, they, you know, with some of this older stuff that might not be, uh, you know, might not have that issue, uh, they can be a little bit more improvisational. They, they can kind of be more experimental in certain cases, sort of doing a little this, little that. Uh, whereas you can't, you can't, uh, you know, you can't split, uh, you know, electronic device in half and and sub in parts. I mean, you can try. Uh, as you mentioned, I heard that you've talked about the sort of uh, right to repair movement. Uh, and the one big aspect of that is that, you know, getting their hands on some of those schematics and some of those proprietary tools has been a major uh, sort of push uh, within that movement. And they've had some success. Uh, they'll tell you not nearly enough. Uh, when you're talking about something uh, like a municipal transit agency, it's a little harder to know what's going on behind the scenes in terms of what they do not do and do not have access to. Uh, but the point remains that uh, it is certainly uh, you know, it, it can be an obstacle to, you know, work with a company and that has all kinds of proprietary protections on their electronics and software when you're in the middle of the day-to-day -day work of trying to keep something up and running. Are market failures, you know, uh, similar parts being unavailable because they are no longer being made and the manufacturer went out of business long ago? Uh, not mechanical failures behind the high cost of maintaining the older rail cars. Is this driven not by the quality of the rail cars themselves, but market factors that drive the cost of maintenance up? Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, it's kind of hard to to be able to answer that question because at this point, we we can't really say if the problem is the machinery itself or if the problem is the budgetary constraints that these engineers are faced with. You know, we we make as a New Yorkers, we complain all the time about the subway and the 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 signal systems and the, the delays and all this. And uh, it's easy to just sort of sit there while you're on your way to work. And, uh, you know, you might be late and, and it's, you know, these trains, what's the matter with them? Why can't we keep them up and running? Is it is it is it uh, flunky uh, repair work? Is it is it a bad uh, piece of technology or machinery, uh, we, we can't really know because behind the scenes, the situation that these uh, engineers and mechanics are faced with is completely untenable. They don't have the budget, they're, they're scrimping and saving every uh, to, to get through basic repairs. The backlog grows every year uh, and they can't do what needs to be done. So it's again, it's as I talk about throughout the piece, there's this very difficult question that we almost can't answer until we sort out the budgetary problem from the mechanical problem and the sort of process problem, the, the problem of uh, how we coordinate these repairs with the problem of how we pay for them. Right now, they're completely intermingled, those two questions. And until we separate them, we can't really uh, answer it uh, straightly. You also write that the MTA is often harassed for its relatively high labor and maintenance costs. To you, what explains our lack of understanding of the cost of maintenance, our lack of tolerance even for maintenance costs, our lack of tolerance for, you know, when we see people doing road construction work, how we have very little tolerance for those people who are doing the road construction work that are necessary for the roads to work. What explains our lack of tolerance to you? Well, as, as I was just saying, you know, it, it, until it becomes a cost, which is to say, 
until something breaks and something somebody has to pay for it it's easy it's it's very easy to ignore uh it's very easy to to you know when you're facing a budgetary shortfall and you're trying to decide where to put your money uh you know the idea of putting money into something that is at that exact moment still working uh is easy to skip over is there a debate right now when it comes to climate change uh is there a debate currently on whether to repair or replace because you write the MTA's predicament has global implications. The industrial world is aging and the sheer quantity and geographic extent of transportation, water and energy infrastructure presents an unprecedented challenge at the exact moment that climate change forces us to rethink material use. So when it comes to climate change, is there a debate currently on whether to repair or replace? I, you know, I think in, in, in certain you know, narrow areas there, this conversation does happen. Like when you're talking about product development, you know, that's, this is an area where you'll have engineers sort of that have uh, sustainability goals in mind. will say, you know, uh, should this product be designed to be put into the waste stream or is it something that you could uh, more easily recycle or even uh, reuse uh, outside of that, uh, area outside of that sort of uh, area I, I think it's it's not discussed in the way uh that i discuss it in the piece which is sort of my sort of challenge that i i present to in many ways i i guess you would say the environmental uh discourse I, I, you know i been writing since the as a reporter since the early 2010s and i was in, kind of involved and interested in a very sort of uh simplistic version of of the sustainability discourse um, and I, over the years, it just sort of became frustrating that there wasn't a real discussion going on about, okay, so we know we need to reduce the uh, amount of fossil fuels that we use, but what, how do we reduce them? What are we reducing and what, at what expense? You know, there's a debate, an ongoing debate between growth and degrowth, but for me, that always seemed like a sorry proxy for what the, the real debate that needs to be had, which is, what do we want as a society and how do we keep it? Um, and, you know, I got I was drawn to the 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 question of the MTA uh, for fairly obvious reasons, because I like it. I want it to work. I, I rely on it daily and not just because it helps me get to work. It helps me live my life to, to see my friends, to move around across a, 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 a huge city and have a wonderful relationship with that city. Uh, so I like it and I want it and I want to figure out how to how it can be maintained and maintaining it is uh, in the case of something like the MTA is, is an intensive process. You're talking about large multi-ton vehicles. You know, this isn't a, you can't just uh, make it in uh, a train into a biodegradable uh, cardboard plate. It's a, it's a big thing and it, it requires a, a lot of carbon to, to keep it going. So, you know, how do we pursue uh, its maintenance over a longer time span and then, you know, how do we broaden that out to not just the MTA, but to infra other infrastructural systems, you know, whether that's uh, the grid itself, the highway system, you know, you can start putting them in a hierarchy of value, you know, the highway system, you know, I personally think, you know, there's probably too many roads out there. Maybe some of them do need to uh, be sort of allowed to uh, be decommissioned, but other things that uh, need a lot more expansion and, and development. So. The, what you write about is maintenance as well as sustainability and the differences between the two. But I want to just talk about growth or degrowth in a moment, for just for, just for a moment. So, uh, 
how do you see growth or degrowth, that kind of framework, falling short in our discussion over what the future should be as we live with climate change? What does growth or degrowth possibly distract us from in that conversation? So I guess you could start with what's the problem with, with the growth side. So let's talk about that. So right now, growth means uh, a, a, a specific form of capitalist accumulation and development. It means uh, expanding profit margins. It means expanding national GDP, uh, which is completely tethered to capitalist accumulation. So on the flip side of that, there is obviously this sort of burgeoning uh, environmental movement that says, you know, you need to hit the brakes. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of merits to that. And I, I appreciate anyone out there who's basically trying to turn this ship around. At the same time, if you are setting up your goal as degrowth, you're, you're, never, you're not really escaping this binary with growth, which as I just described is, means something very specific. It means capitalist accumulation. So in what way do you, do you, do you go about uh, pursuing degrowth? What exactly are you uh, shutting down? I mean, it, it would seem to me that the, smart, the, the better way of phrasing it is to, you know, uh, break or, or sort of uh, stop the, the engines of capitalist accumulation rather than, uh, de you know, stopping growth in the abstract. Because I think in a lot of people's minds still, growth is something that makes a lot of sense to them. There's there's communities all over America, uh, let alone the planet, that need a lot of things. Uh, you know, even in a place like New York City, uh, which is, you know, easily one of the, has some of the best municipal services in the country, needs so much uh it, it's 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 infrastructure is in in certain areas in a state of collapse um so i don't think it, it's a very convincing argument uh to come to the table and say you know just pursue degrowth what do you want to what do you want to stop growing and, and then what do you want to keep growing and maybe we should just shift our terms so that we can have a more practical conversation about what we want and don't want and what we need and don't need so is that is the big question then? How uh, well, how should we determine what of our current infrastructure should be kept or maintained, considering its contributions to climate change causing emissions? I mean, there's a lot of part of our infrastructure right now that is the cause of, or at least a contributor to climate change. So how should we determine what parts of our infrastructure should be kept and what parts shouldn't be kept? Or is that the discussion we need to be having right now? I, I think it is exactly the discussion we need to be having. And I don't think there's really a one size fits all answer. And, and I think, you know, in the city of New York, uh, I think the answer to, to do we want to keep the MTA is fairly straightforward. I think uh, the alternative uh, is would be untenable. I mean, we have a, a whole sort of city that relies on it and uh, whatever kind of uh, city it becomes in the future, um, I think at one level, we want to see uh, the MTA continue. But when you broaden that out to the <laughs> to the entire country, you know, what uh, do, do we do? We need a new highway here or or not. Do we need a new uh, power plant here or not? Uh, I think it's uh, there, there's it's a very difficult question to answer. And I think you have to incorporate local goals on the part of, you know, communities and what they need. And then also national prerogatives, like, you know, our total carbon output and things like that. I don't, I don't think reconciling those two things is easy. I, I, I think that's kind of 
the whole point in writing this piece was to suggest it's not easy actually and we need to start talking uh to communities and to workers uh to figure out what the best way forward is because there's this sort of binary of growth or degrowth is is inadequate do you think there's also an issue with speaking in vagaries instead of specifics is that a part of uh, you see that as a problem with the environmentalism movement at this point in time absolutely absolutely and i i think you know you know many people have pointed out that it's sort of rich coming from you know an environmentalist living in america who does enjoy uh the services and the the state of development that we that we have here uh to sort of say uh you know to the rest of the world no it's it all it's time to stop now we can't you can't build hospitals you can't have high-speed trains you can't have whatever um and that's that's a, it's sort of a, a cheap shot you know because i don't think a lot of environmentalists have that simplistic a viewpoint but i do think there is uh, there is a level of generalization when we think about you know this need to to cut fossil fuels or reduce fossil fuels that we need to overcome if we're actually going to pursue uh sustainability in such a way that we that 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 it's intentional you know one of the things i talk about in the piece is that the, the ethic of maintenance that the MTA has came out of conditions of austerity. You know, they had to do that. They had to get smart about how they maintained because they didn't have the resources to just buy a bunch of new trains. And one of the things I see in the environmental movement is almost this sense that they, they believe that the sort of globalized austerity that would come with climate change will force our hand, that suddenly we won't have the resources that we need, so we'll be forced to cut back. And I, you know, that may very well happen, but I think that's actually a very scary scenario. I would rather, as a society, we intentionally pursue what we want and do it in such a way that it's that isn't destroying the environment. And I think that that requires a very different kind of conversation than you know, this sort of on or off switch of more or less carbon. So how do you see maintenance different from sustainability? Because we've had many guests on the show who considered sustainability not only impossible, but if you want to address climate change, it's undesirable in general when it comes to its impact on the planet and the people who live here. They believe sustainability should be abandoned as it will only continue the process of climate change. So who or how are maintenance and sustainability how are those two things different well you know in, in one in one sense um you, you know it's splitting hairs a bit and it's 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 definitely semantical but uh but i think it's 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 worth uh drawing the distinction and i guess the way that i would do it is sustainability to me seems concerned with a, with a certain end state you know you you get to uh sustainability and then you kind of uh uh, you know, it, sustainability is this thing on the horizon where we are uh, in this sort of perfect loop with ourselves so, and this sort of um, this uh, zero impact kind of uh, mentality. Um, whereas maintenance is, is, is more of a process. It's, 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 it's a series, it's a series of actions that have to take place. And it's always, it's not, uh, there's all, there's not one sort of version of what perfect maintenance looks like like it's always particular to a to a, a specific technological mechanical regime you know like maintenance looks like one thing at the mta 
It looks like another thing if you're talking about the power grid. It looks like another thing if you're talking about uh, the public health system in this country. How do you maintain that? And the answer is always different. Um, I think with sustainability, I mean, you could you could sort of certainly sort of uh, re reformulate that term in the way that it's used. But I, I think in many ways, maintenance is more apt to describe this more flexible and uh, always contingent uh, concept uh, that, again, requires us to talk to workers themselves and communities themselves to really understand what it entails. So does maintenance mean greater community participation, both the design and maintenance of the already built infrastructure? Does this make it more of a collective response to climate change? Absolutely. And, and as you mentioned at the top, I mean, it's about, in large part, it's about um, revaluing work itself. Um, you know, maintenance is, is, a, is a job. Um, and it's hard to understand what, you know, what good maintenance requires if you're not talking to the people who are doing it. Um, you know, I think that's, I think that's key. I mean, when you, I was talking earlier about, um, you know, product development, you know, one, one research, a bit of research that I was reading and in, in preparation for this piece was, uh, about steel production. You know, one thing that, uh, steel production does is they don't, they don't custom make pieces because it's actually the labor is more expensive to custom produce a, a piece of steel than it is to just pump out uniform sized pieces well, what's the significance of that well if you're creating a lot of waste because you don't need that exact dimension for everything you know it'd be better to to put in the labor uh to create this custom sized piece but as it stands now especially in the developing world uh materials are cheaper than labor so it's easier to just pump out the materials and not uh you know and not worry about uh saving that little bit of extra metal again you know you don't know exactly until you look at the particular process uh and figure out what's possible you also mentioned the ellen macarthur foundation which funds research on the topic defining as and quote an industrial system that is restorative or regenerative by intention and design to what extent is our current economic and political system accommodating to restoration and regeneration? Does our current system depend upon being damaging and wasteful and the volatility that that causes? It, it absolutely does. I mean, as I, as I was saying earlier, the, you know, this is a, um, a machine for capital accumulation. And uh, that is the overriding prerogative. And uh, any sort of uh, you know, human or, or planetary or environmental concern that that it exists under that, it, it will always be secondary. Even even if you can somehow uh, tweak the uh, market mechanics, you know, this is the big thing in the sort of uh, green capitalism movement. So if you just just account for this this externality here or that externality there, you're all set. You know, then the pricing will start working out, and we'll start accounting for this. Uh, you know, something like uh, the, the air quality or the water quality or uh, carbon emissions. But it, that will always be secondary. And ultimately, uh, as soon as the, the numbers stop working out, as soon as, um, you know, the goal of, let's say, a uh, smooth running transit system doesn't line up with uh, the, the prerogatives of capital, those two things will uh, once again break apart and, uh, you know, one will neglect the other. 
So we were talking about how our economic system encourages volatility. Does then is maintenance offering uh, stability? Is that the conflict between capitalism and maintenance? One is dependent upon volatility, while the other attempts and has the horizon of stability. That's yeah. That's the whole goal is to create things that last. Um, and it's amazing that that's that that is such a. It's amazing that this is neglected. If you think about. It. I mean, you're basically you're talking about basic social reproduction. You know, you're talking about the things that we wake up in the morning one day and have having them the next day. And it's amazing what we allow in this country uh, in terms of what what we what we sacrifice, what we allow to be destroyed, because it doesn't um, line up with the goals of capital. I mean, you know all too well. You were talking a bit earlier about the places that you've lived throughout your life. I mean, there are whole cities that have been sacrificed let alone individual infrastructural systems like the MTA. Um, it's it's a tragedy. And I think this framework could help us think about why we're all here in the first place, which is to reproduce ourselves, reproduce our lives, um, and to reproduce the better aspects of our lives. I think maintenance has, a, has a, an ability to account for that in a way that perhaps other, you know, other frameworks don't. But in the past, and not not too far away past, not too long, uh, long, not too long in the past uh, time, you know, when back in the fifties and sixties and seventies, there were people to, who were doing a lot more repairs and maintenance to what they had than they are now. A lot of that is because of computerization. You would have to order a special F-150 truck that doesn't have computers in it, and you have to spend a whole bunch more money on it in order for you to actually mechanically repair that truck. So is the is the real issue, or so what changed, I guess? Is it just computers that changed, or is there something about society that changed that made us more wasteful instead of a society that maintains better? Well, interestingly, uh, you know, one personal anecdote, which I don't talk about in the piece, but, uh, but you know, my grandfather was uh, worked for IBM in the 60s and 70s, uh, and he essentially was a maintenance man. You know, so he was going out and uh, going to companies that had bought IBM computers and uh, fixing them. And this is a guy now who, you know, can't really navigate, uh, you know, any a basic computer interface to, to my, uh, you know, it's, it's, but it, you know, 40, 50 years ago, he could open up a computer and he could repair it. So I think on the one hand, the tech, the technology itself is a part of this. I mean, it has gotten more complicated. And I think what, that comes with a responsibility, I think, which is, you know, you have to, as, as, technologies become uh, and society itself becomes more com- complex and uh, reliant on technologies, the sort of uh, public knowledge and understanding and education around those technologies has to increase. Uh, otherwise, you have a situation where you're increasingly dependent on something you understand less and less. So I think I think education is an element here. And I also think kind of breaking open the black box of corporations so that uh, you know people can actually know what's going on inside of their products, uh, their cars, their computers, um, and can have a little bit more autonomy in fixing them. I, I spoke to one uh, repairman, I guess is the word. I, I don't know if he would refer to himself that way, but he's a, he's a technician, I guess you could say. He owns a shop in uh, Manhattan, and he repairs mostly iPhones and uh, Macs and things like that. And he, for years, uh, would do this work kind of on the, the side. 
and he he couldn't really figure out the circuit boards and he thought that he was just stupid like he's like i guess i just can't figure it out and somebody who goes to school for uh computer science or engineering they just figure it out but then he realized it wasn't that he was stupid it was the fact that, that you know these engineers look at schematics which are available to them uh you know when they work for the company and these schematics aren't publicly available i mean he straight up told me he's like yeah i go on the dark web and i buy them and then i look at them and then i'm able to repair the circuit boards it's it's a, a simple matter of sort of making that knowledge uh more accessible and i think you know to take that example and to broaden it out to the rest of society i mean i think there's so many things that we don't understand and that more could be done to help us understand them whether that's increased education and training uh, or something like just making the information actually available. So has capital, because I found that, that part of your uh, article really fascinating, has capital then criminalized maintenance and innovation? Yeah, I mean, in certain cases, it, it literally has. I mean, uh, especially when you're talking about products. I mean, the gains that we've seen recently with the right to repair movement are, uh, are you know, are fairly recent. I mean, they're, you're talking about, you know, decades of, of us, you know, you know, handheld computers and, and laptops not really being something that people uh, had all the information they needed to, to be able to repair. You also write that Nathan Proctor, a director of the Campaign for the Right to Repair at the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, said it's a matter of capitalism not staying in its lane. You then quote Proctor saying, I think capitalism is an efficient way to organize commerce, but it shouldn't be organizing social value, and it does. What's wrong with capitalism determining social value? I mean, that's exactly uh, the point I was making earlier about this idea that if you just sort of uh, take uh, an externality and bring it into the uh, you bring it into the price system, bring it into the market, and properly account for it, then you know it'll start working out. I mean, he sees uh, Proctor sees capitalism as sort of uh, not organized fundamentally not organizing value in society you know it's this secondary thing that we can kind of pick up or put down use it as we please whereas capital itself is the way of organize is is a system for organizing value it assigns value it determines value it, it determines the actions that we take uh in in response to how we value things so you can't you can't just shunt uh these social goals off to the side and say uh, you know, that capitalism, you know, if it was tweaked in such a way, it would be able to handle, you know, it's, it's, it, capitalism is value. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the wrong way of, of thinking about value. And you write about capitalism, organizing social value quote that places the issue firmly in the domain of rules and regulations. You then quote, Lee Vinsel, the co-founder of the maintainers, one of the few advocacy groups to focus on the issue, writing in his book, moving violations, automobiles, experts, and regulations in the United States. Industries can evolve symbiotically with regulators. Vinsel states, I really think we can use regulatory structures to get a lot of this done by having requirements that technologies have to live up to. It actually opens up the creativity of capitalism, right? How can regulations and rules make spaces for creativity? After all, capitalists always argue against a regulatory state. So how can creativity under capitalism be expanded with government rules and regulations? Yeah, I mean, what he's saying at, at one level is undeniably true. I mean, you can you can regulate your way to a better state of affairs. I mean, you can uh, you can account for things that previously weren't uh, that were sort of just left uh, to the market to decide. I just think, you know, 
that vision just doesn't go quite far enough. I think, you know, regulations are inevitably going to be a part of any uh, governmental regime going forward. Uh, but I think you have to go further than that and, and fundamentally reorganize uh, the economy so that those regulations aren't just sort of working around the edges of these larger issues. And you write, if maintenance seems conservative, decked out in language about freedom from government oversight and corporate control, it doesn't have to be. The right to repair movement falls well short of reordering society. It might, however, mark the return of a material awareness. What change or effect could that have on what you call our material awareness? How could maintenance change the way we view material? Yeah, I mean, look, if we're not going to go back to the land, if we're not going to all become farmers again, well, then we have to figure out how to live in an industrialized world and decide what aspects of it we want to keep and and figure out how to keep them. And, you know, I think the pandemic and the last couple of years have actually done a lot to make people more sort of materially aware. You know, they've they've learned about things like supply chains, which they took for granted. And, and <laughs> you know, I speak to a lot of people in uh, in business, you know, exactly executives, consultants, you know, that, those type of people. And believe it or not, they were they were taking a lot of that for granted too. You know, it was just the part of the system that worked and, uh, you know, and they could just sort of go about their business. So it wasn't just regular people. I think everyone lacked a certain awareness about how we live the way that we do. You know, how do we get the stuff that we get, uh, that we need? How do we, how does electricity, you know, get to our, our homes? Um, how does the food get into the grocery store? Um, and I think, you know, people are interested in this stuff because it's affecting them through things like inflation and shortages, uh, but it's always affecting them. And I think going forward, we have to start having the conversation about separating and talking about how these processes work apart from capital. Right now, you, you can't disaggregate them. They're completely uh, entangled. You know the food system that we have, the way that you that the the eggs uh, get to the to the supermarket, is a a process that is everywhere and at every point mediated by capital. But it is still a technical, human, social process at the exact same time. And I think figuring out how to disentangle them, and then take them on their own terms, is crucial to securing the future. I really do, and I think that means again talking to farmers, talking to linemen on a, you know, for a grid operator, talking to engineers for the local maintenance system. There are so many people, uh, workers out there who are every day working to secure our future and we neglect them and we neglect the, the roles that they are in. I think that's, that's uh, it, again, it's a tragedy. And I think uh, talking about maintenance more could be a way of revamping valuing that work and revaluing those processes that are so uh, essential to our lives. So is there a divide between environmentalists and labor, not only because workers may see environmentalism as a threat to their job through climate change addressing regulations, but also because, as you state in your article and you were just saying, maintenance and labor have just not been addressed by environmentalists. Is Is part of that tension between environmentalists and labor the fact that environmentalism hasn't included labor in that conversation. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on uh, what environmentalists you're talking about. If you're talking about green capitalists, I mean, 
uh, as capitalists uh, in the long tradition of capital, they are always, uh, as, as they always have been, uh, putting uh, social change on the back of labor, making labor uh, pay the cost uh, of any type of social goal, whether that's uh, something as abstract as GDP growth or, uh, you know, building uh, train lines across the country, you know, 150 years ago. Uh, you know, labor always pays the cost. Uh, but even even among more left wing environmentalists, I think there is um, sort of uh, there, there is the work hasn't been done of sort of integrating what they want, this broader goal of degrowth and uh, carbon, uh, the reduction of carbon emissions with uh, the question of labor and, uh, you know, and, and how their own self-survival and, and, and prosperity uh, of individual workers and, and trades. Um, so I think more work could be done in that department for sure. Um, but yeah, again, it's uh, broadly speaking, uh, the environment, the liberal and capitalist environmental movement is completely uh, neglecting uh, workers. And, uh, you know, as a matter of uh, the whole point is is to neglect the workers. Obviously. And you write about how, uh, you know, the uh, price mechanism, it's supposed to fix everything. The way this globalized coercion is supposed to happen is through the price mechanism. Governments will either pass a law raising the cost of carbon emissions through some kind of cap and or increasing scarcity will drive up the price of resources. Remember the peak oil debate of the early 2000s? Eventually, experts told us gasoline would get so expensive that people would start moving to cities, riding a bike, and taking the train. Well, let's see, uh, you know, how did people react? We saw high gas prices, record-breaking prices here in the States. Now that drivers have seen $7 plus a gallon, how have they reacted? What does that reaction say to you about the success of the price mechanism and changing people's lifestyles? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it, it's it's a risky gambit to trust the price mechanism to to get us to people across society and across the world to do what needs to be done to to save ourselves. It's uh, capital is very flexible. It's very adaptable. Um, you know, whether or not we've reached peak oil or not is. Uh, is a, is a very technical question, but the extent to which we get to see that is, again, it's completely mediated by these, you know, globe spanning markets that, uh, again, are very flexible. You know, they will, they can move things around. They can, uh, you know, in worst case scenario, they can, they can start, the governments can start subsidizing fuels, you know, as they've done in many places around the world. There's plenty of ways to sort of dodge the, the fundamental and deeper uh, issues that we're dealing with here. I mean, as a reporter, one thing I've, I've covered a lot is uh, the electric vehicle industry and this question of uh, where they get the materials for batteries. Uh, with the EV boom of the past year or two, uh, the prices of these batteries have just skyrocketed. Um, and that's not necessarily led to this sort of kumbaya movement among uh, governments that are, you know, determined to transition to electric vehicles. It's led to more kind of uh, aggressive, acquisitive actions on the part of companies and governments. People, you know, nationalizing things and uh, mines or companies sort of setting up their own supply lines and it's become even more cutthroat. I think more broadly, like to rely on the price mechanism is to kind of go back to, go back to my earlier point of, uh, you're talking about a very anarchic situation that you, you can't pre predict the way that it's gonna play out. And I, I would guess that it uh, that it would you know if you do that you're you're talking about a situation that becomes more volatile and violent and unpredictable than one where you try to pull some of these things out of the price 
mechanism out of the market so that we can begin dealing with them on their own terms. One last question for you, Alex. We have been speaking with editor, reporter, and freelance writer Alex Vucolo, who wrote the Noema magazine article, The Disappearing Art of Maintenance. You can follow Alex on Twitter at Alex, V-U-O-C-O-L-O. One last question for you, Alex. We do this with all of our guests, I promise. Our final question is called The Question from Hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Or, this is the category usually falls in, our audience will hate your response. You write, the impact of climate change will be unevenly distributed in space and time rather than a single biblical reckoning. There will be a series of disasters and dislocations, which global capitalism has so far proven highly adaptable at ignoring or overcoming. Alex, why is capital so good at getting the public to ignore a crisis? And how dangerous is that in our time of climate change? Well, uh, you know, I think people themselves are very adaptable. And when I look mm-hmm. at what happened to American cities, you know, going back to the 70s and 80s, when they people started to realize that their local government wasn't there for them, uh, they started to basically give up on the expectation that, that, that it would. So they kind of, uh, some of them moved to the suburbs, uh, some of them built very sort of strong uh, community groups that that were that were less ambitious in the scope of what they wanted to do, but were they designed to, you know, present, protect and preserve what was already there. Um, so why do I think capital is so adaptable? I think it's because if it continues to fail in the basic sort of goal of of reproducing society, human beings will just sort of turn inward. You know, they will they will just sort of tend to themselves, they will take care of themselves. Uh, uh, and the, the broader goal of society, of having a society, of building a better society, will fall by the wayside. And I, I, it's, it's not to say, I, don't, I certainly don't blame anyone for doing that, uh, but I think that's naturally uh, what happens when a collective response uh, becomes impossible. Well, see, that's an answer from a uh, answer from hell for a question from hell. I really appreciate you being on the show, Alex. This is a very interesting take on a lot of the discussions that we've been having of late. So I truly appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is hell if what you just heard from. Alex Vucolo on maintenance as a different way of responding to climate change and challenging capitalism if that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that yes, this really is hell. Please show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and his podcast shortly after, patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, despite climate change, as well as all the fear, hatred, and violence and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? That's a good question from hell, Dan. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard one this week. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> 
Let's see. The first reply here is a long one from SL Smith. It says, having already read the gobsmackingly beautiful Homebound by Vanessa A. B. before it's released tomorrow, the 11th of October. Today? This it's, today, yeah, yeah, the 11th today. of October. It's glorious like the work of Leo Tolstoy, Franz Kafka, Rob Wallace, Matt Cedillo. Hashtag guest suggestions. All right. Very <laughs> okay. good guest suggestions. Thank you. And then uh, Jeffrey Yoseves Dorchin says what currently is making him happy is food, movies, and your mom. Ah, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> uh, Krimsky Crackers says... Roger Walters, I find his words inspiring, his stance uplifting, and cannot find fault with his lyrics. <laughs> Colon, breathe, breathe in the air. <laughs> All right. Yes, you have to keep breathing. If you stop, uh, that's a problem. Uh, <laughs> who knew there'd be a Pink Floyd reference? Let us move on. All right. It's uh, all of them on Facebook, but there's a lot of them on Twitter this week. I know. There's a ton <clears throat> on Twitter. It's really odd that there's so many on Twitter this week. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to figure out if this is ordered in any nope. particular way on Twitter. I don't think Probably so. Probably not. Um, I'm going to scroll to the bottom. Okay. From at memory hole... Okay. Uh, what's making them happy despite climate change and fear and violence and hatred and disease permeating the world? Uh, making eyes at you, good looking, <laughs> winky face. <laughs> All right, let's leave that in the memory. <laughs> I'm glad hole. this is an audio podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> at PG Fict says concerts. Especially at 21, everybody's like advertising for people in our, in this one, especially at 21 Pilots, Closer Trees. They uh, want you okay. to listen to that. Okay. Uh, um, do I have to? <laughs> you don't. Thank you. <laughs> Ginger, at Not All Genders, right. says that movies about wealthy people on disastrous vacations. <laughs> That's <laughs> that a good, good one. one. That is a very good one. That is a good one. I like that. That's a, a growing genre, too. <laughs> I, I gotta see these. It's like, <laughs> that will make me happy. Okay. And then at Pat, the expat says, cycling and sleeping in a tent for six weeks or so. Okay. That would make me happy. Yeah. It's getting cold, though. Yeah. Um, you know, one time we went camping and it was too cold and we zipped up the tent entirely, which you're not supposed to do. You have to let air come in. And so it got below freezing. And we let off a lot of body heat overnight. And so this thin layer of ice accumulated on the inside of the tent. And at one point, the ice, because somebody had hit the wall or something, had started falling off. And it was snowing inside of our tent, <laughs> but not outside of our tent. Now that's some professional camping right there. That is really good camping. <laughs> any more? Do we have any more answers to this week's question, Mel? I mean, that's the point of going out in nature, right? Right. Exactly. Having nature come elements. in. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Uh, well, there's still quite a few more. I'll read like one more. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this is a pretty good one. Uh, what, despite climate change, as well as all the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? At Immortal Tortle. This is funny. Their their response is, I'll be dead soon. Oh, but their name is Immortal Tortoise. Well, that's, tortoise. Immortal Tortoise. That seems contradictory. <laughs> that seems contradictory. Let's get a few more. Uh, a we few got some more? Time. Yeah, okay. we got some time. Uh, 
from the left isn't divided, the center is. Uh, <laughs> that's their Twitter name. Yeah. Those chocolate bars with shrooms in them seem to get the job done. They do seem to get the job done. And I ran into somebody the other night who told me that they had just eaten chocolate and they think that there was mushrooms in it, but they weren't too sure. And I looked at them and I said, I can tell you, I am positive there were mushrooms in your chocolate bar. <laughs> <laughs> Any more? Uh, yeah. Uh, Paul Nice Good says, the fact that I am right, brain emoji, thumbs up emoji. Oh, okay. He's right. That's what's making him happy. I can't... I don't know about what, but... uh, And then from at third cloud, pizza. I think we can end there, right? It gets you happy, I guess. (laughs) Leave the rest for tomorrow. Yes, let's leave the rest for tomorrow on that note. (laughs) Uh, You, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth, during this week's moment, Jeff promotes the new slow bile movement. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later on this week's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in Rotten History. On October 12th, 1967, 55 years ago this week, a Cyprus Airways passenger jet en route from Athens to Nicosia in Cyprus, was cruising at 29,000 feet over the eastern Mediterranean when, without warning, it blew up. All 66 passengers and crew on board were killed. 51 bodies were later recovered from the sea. Investigators also found plastic explosive residue and concluded that the blast had been deliberately set as a terrorist act, but no person or organization ever claimed any responsibility. And right out of the gate, Ronaldo offers a concise telling of a moment in rotten history that gives me absolutely no space for wisecracks or any kind of humorous aside. It's as if he's implying that I was somehow responsible or giving me the opportunity to claim responsibility, to purge my soul of the guilt I still burden myself with for being part of the unknown terrorist organization that blew up that Cyprus Airways jet. And I am not about to take any responsibility from that bombing, that terrorist act. Although the publicity would probably be good for our Patreon numbers. And if that's what it takes, so be it. Also on Rotten History, in Rotten History, October 13th in the year 54 CE, 1968 years ago this week, the fourth Roman Emperor Claudius died at the age of 63, and it ain't that how it always is. Two years short of retirement, with Claudius's 401k about to kick in, he passes away. According to many of the ancient Roman historians, Claudius was deliberately poisoned, most likely by his fourth wife, Agrippina the Younger, who unsurprisingly was entitled to all of Claudia's 401k riches, as well as his investment in mutual funds and Franklin Mint plates, featuring all of the Caesars. According to the ancient theory, Agrippina the Younger believed that as a descendant of the first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, 
she could count on political support for making her own son, Nero, the new emperor after Claudius was dead, especially since Nero also had the advantage of being married to Claudius' daughter and was a terrific violinist. But the potential obstacle was that Claudius had recently begun to favor his own son, Britannicus, who was younger than Nero, but wrote one hell of an encyclopedia. So from Agrippina's point of view, for her son Nero to become uh, emperor, Claudius had to die before he could firmly establish Britannicus as heir to the throne. The ancient writers speculated that Claudius was served poison mushrooms in his dinner, which was likely made up by those people who hate mushrooms. But not all modern histories are convinced that Agrippina really was the murderer. Some of them point out that at the age of 63, Claudius was beset by many ailments, whose obvious symptoms the ancient authors also described in detail. In any case, after the death of Claudius, Nero took power and spent most, much of his reign criticizing and disavowing the work of his predecessor. Wow. What a dick. I mean, who would spend all their time while in leadership complaining about past leaders? I mean, complaining about your predecessor is an obvious distraction from the shortcomings of your own leadership that everyone can see through, right? I mean, I can, and I'm freaking legally blind. That's rotten history, and this is hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Is it author, theologian, ordained minister, and anti-poverty activist, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, about her Tom Dispatch article, No More Sacrifices, Mercy Makes Good Policy? That. I didn't get the email, but I found it in Sebastian's that's open here. Oh, sweet. So there you go. Yes, that is tomorrow's guest. And of course, as always, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. During this week's moment, Jeff promotes his new slow bile movement, whatever the hell that is. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing. We told you so. This my is hell. It's on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.